Hello, this is Dr. Martin Kolb. I am chief editor of the European Respiratory Journal. Today with me are Professor Kevin Brown from the National Jewish Health in Denver, Colorado, and Professor Arthur Wells from the Royal Brompton Hospital in London, United Kingdom. We will be talking today about a paper that was published this month in the ERJ with the title, The Natural History of Progressive Fibrosing Interstitial Lung Disease. Hello, Professor Brown and Professor Wells. Greetings. So I have a few questions. Maybe, Professor Brown, you can start because you were the first author. Can you briefly summarize the key findings of this paper to our audience? Sure. Thank, thank you, Professor Kolb. It's a pleasure for me to join you today. So when you think about interstitial lung disease, particularly fibrosing interstitial lung disease, you immediately start to think about idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. But you don't need to see very many patients with fibrosing forms of interstitial lung disease, certainly not as many as Professor Kolb or Professor Wellesley, to quickly realize that there are lots of patients with lung fibrosis who don't have idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. For example, rheumatoid arthritis-associated disease, fibrosing forms of hypersensitivity, pneumonitis, even drug-related disease, and a whole variety of others. And we also recognize that a number of those patients seem to act like those with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, regardless of how well you approach their treatment. So despite management, despite appropriate management, they seem to get worse. And we asked ourselves the question, does this progression of their disease act like what we see in idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis? Because we have therapy for idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis that seems to offer significant benefit. And what we were able to show in this study, I think, is that when you compare patients with previously progressive pulmonary fibrosis despite active management, force vital capacity is almost identical that the number of patients that have an absolute decrease in their force vital capacity or relative decrease in their force vital capacity at 52 weeks is about 50%, and that the mortality rates are quite similar. And not only that, but that the decline in FEC above a threshold of 10% works just as well as a surrogate of mortality in this group of non-IPF progressive fibrosing interstitial lung diseases as it does in IPF. So let me dwell a little bit deeper by asking Professor Wells about the, what does this study tell us uh, about real-life management of patients with progressive fibrotic ILD, and are, are patients all progressing? Thank you, Professor Kolb. And let me echo my pleasure in being here. Also my pleasure that you've asked that question because it is essential to make this clear, I think. So Professor Brown referred to some patients with fibrotic lung disease, not IPF, following this progressive course. And it is essential to underscore the sum that some patients do. So this study is not a statement how all patients with fibrotic lung disease that do not have IPF, it's not a statement of how they behave. We are looking at that subgroup of patients who, in spite of appropriate management, do progress in the run-up to the trial. This absolutely underscores the need 
accurate diagnosis at presentation because with accurate diagnosis, many patients have treatments that meet their needs. They actually are not the group of patients that were enrolled into our study. So if one was trying to estimate, as I suppose one should, the proportion of patients other fibrotic lung disease that end up in this category of IPF-like behavior, best guess is possibly somewhere between 20 and 40 percent, but it obviously depends upon how severe the disease is. There's probably not a one-size-fits-all figure, but we are talking about a minority of patients, but very, very significant minority. Thank you. Thank you very much. I have a follow-up question to Professor Brown. So we just heard about IPF-like behavior, and the study talks about UIP-like pattern. So, Professor Brown, how would uh, we understand this UIP-like pattern and the non-UIP-like pattern in clinical practice, and how would we manage this? I think that's a really important question because we spend a lot of time thinking about this UIP pattern particularly on radiology, on high-resolution CT scan, uh, but also occasionally pathologically. But focusing solely on the radiology and the radiologic UIP pattern, we know that there's a strict definition of this UIP pattern and that the absence of this UIP pattern uh, is often the reason that a patient does not get a confirmed diagnosis of IPF. I think what we were able to show in this study was that whether you had a UIP pattern or a non-UIP pattern, that in general, your behavior was the same. God, this is, I think, very important for clinical practice. So if, if you behave like IPF, the pattern is really not the driving factor of whether you would take action or not. Now, Professor Wells, let me ask you one last question, which is a little bit more academic at this point, but our listeners and readers may have heard about a debate that is called lumping versus splitting. Could you just briefly explain uh, what that means in the context of progressive fibrotic ILD? Well, most certainly, but I would argue <coughs> that it may be less academic than it appears. So in our field, ILD, there has been a long tradition that every separate disease must be viewed as a separate disease, a separate pathogenesis and separate therapies. In other areas, one think of COPD, there's been a tradition of perhaps amalgamating possible separate disorders and viewing them as a single disorder. Now, I can't claim to have understood how our specialty reached that conclusion. I think it's an evidence-based conclusion it does structure the nature of our evidence base, that what are reported are always studies that view each of our disorders in their multiplicity as separate disorders. There is a danger in that. This is splitting. That if you have pathways to fibrosis that are common to disorders, you may be missing opportunities. So the idea that treatment that was helpful in our most progressive disorder might have benefits in other disorders was very much an attempt to find commonality. And if you think about this, 
and you reflect on the fact that we've known for so long that there are similarities between our fibrosing disorders on CT and biopsy. There are definite similarities, as we've discussed, in the way in which these diseases progress. It is perhaps extraordinary that there has not been an attempt to find common pathways across our diseases to any extent over the last 20 years. And this trial was such an attempt, the hypothesis underpinning it being that there was a lumping across the diseases, a commonality of pathway that might be accessed by therapy that was effective in a single disease. Just one closing point about that. There is a danger if you are tuned to splitting. You believe every disorder must be separated always. You will view any balance of these two approaches as the other extreme. We are not obsessive lumpers as a group. I think I must say that. There is a wish to balance the use of therapies in individual diseases splitting with a move to an alternative strategy if those treatments fail. And so this is a balance of splitting and lumping. It's an effort to find the middle ground, and that very much underpins the ethos of the study. Thank you very much. Um, so this brings our podcast to a conclusion, and I'm thankful of Professor Brown National Jewish Health in Denver, Colorado, Professor Arthur Wells, Royal Brompton Hospital in London, United Kingdom, talking about the natural history of progressive fibrosing interstitial lung disease. This is Dr. Martin Kolb, Chief Editor of the ERJ, and thanks for listening today.